Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio Show. I'm here in Minnesota, but it doesn't matter because we're connecting people all over the world, and I'm so excited to be with you today. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, radio, and the Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture webinar series. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss along with their care partners, empowering them to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Our channel expert, Rick Phelps, who also has early onset, known as EOAD, may pop into our show. I never quite know with Rick's schedule. He was diagnosed in June of 2012, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates. If you haven't checked it out, I highly um, you know, encourage you to do so. I also like to just you know, remind people that collaboratively we can shift caregiving from crisis to comfort by sharing our knowledge, our insights, our passions. And so I really encourage all of you to join our mission. We would love to hear your voice, your thoughts, your comments, and your questions. So if you're listening online, you can use our chat box to post a comment or a question, or you can call in live at 714-364-4754. That's 714 714- Three six four four seven four. I'm sorry, four seven five four, and push one to get into my screening room. If you're the silent type out there and not ready for your voice to be heard, you can still help spread the word of our show by liking us on Facebook or tweeting about us or doing a blog post or putting us in your newsletter or highlighting an episode or even emailing the show to your friends. All these options are on our homepage. And again, we would love for you to become part of the force of shifting our dementia care culture. Today's show is going to be, I think, quite fabulous. We have uh, Steve um, Ponton with us. And Steve is going to be 50 years old in September. And he knew that he was having some memory issues, but it really was a process for him to go ahead and get diagnosed. Um, Very... um, very interesting, and he's going to share his story with us today and his journey. So, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm having a good morning in comparison to some today. Well, wonderful. We're, we are so excited to have you here. You know, I titled this show, so I was right. There is a problem with my memory because I hear so many people say the same thing. And so I think it's um, just a, a perfect segue into your story. Can you tell us a bit about your background? What type of work did you do, Steve? Well, I was working as an EKG technician in a hospital um, for just about three years, and that was my main thing. I did EKGs in the emergency room, but I did all the billing and all the um, editing of the EKGs and everything in a separate office, and that's that's mainly what I did. Okay. And how about family? Are you married? Do you, do you have kids? Yep, I'm married. My wife, we, uh, in June 5th of this year, it'll be 25 years we've been married, and I have a 23-year-old daughter, Katrina, and a 20-year-old son who's in college. 
His name is Tyler. Okay. So this had to be a kind of an interesting journey for all of you, being so young um, with this disease hitting, um, because everybody thinks it's an old person's disease. Can you exactly. give us... Can you give us um, some examples of when you started noticing that you were having some memory problems? Well, it, my son was in college and my daughter was, um, she doesn't live with us, but they would call and they'd say, well, tell mom this. And I'd forget to tell them. And then my wife would come to me a day or two later and say, well, Katrina told me that she talked to you and you were supposed to. I said, well, I don't remember that. The other things that really started to alarm me were I'd have conversations with a coworker at work about work-related subjects, and we'd talk about it one day, and then the next day she'd come back to the conversation, and I couldn't remember the conversation at all. Okay. And it really started to worry me. So this is this is very different than I forgot, and then when somebody talks about it, you go, oh, yeah, I, I, now I remember I forgot to tell you. You just don't remember it happening at all. Is it, that correct? It was, it was a 100% loss of the whole entire conversation. Oh, that, that had to be really scary. Um, yeah, well, the one thing that I run into is, and this is an easy, easy one to say, but people lose their keys. Well, you can backtrack in your mind, and you're going to be able to find your keys. But with me, if I've lost my keys... I can't get my memory to back up to well where do, where was I what was the, where was the last place I was my brain doesn't work that way I can't back my memory up to find my keys I'm stuck in the present and my keys are literally lost because I can't go back in my mind to find my keys Okay okay now I know that you um had shared with me and you said this was okay to share with the the audience that you were having some side effects from some antidepressants um, that you thought exactly. might have been a part of that. Um, and then you were also having some other side effects with some um, involuntary, you know, muscle tremors and tics and things. Now, was this exactly. was this part of the dementia or was this part of something else? Or That process was, was, was interesting. I, um, I had been seeing a psychiatrist for my, I'm clinically, I've been, Diagnosed clinically depressed for 23 years, and um, I've been taking Prozac on and off because it's the best medication, but they added Lamictal, and I had been on Lamictal for about four years, and I was getting facial tics and involuntary muscle tremors, plus the memory issues were happening. So I went to that psychiatrist and said, hey, this is happening. He says, it's got nothing to do with the medication. I went to another psychiatrist for a second opinion, and he said, no, we need to run blood tests. We need to do this, this, and this. I do believe that they are side effects of the lamictal. So I went to an MD, and I had um, all kinds of lab work done. He did an MRI, and we went through the whole process. But the new psychiatrist immediately stopped the, or weaned me off the lamictal so I wouldn't go through withdrawal, and after eight weeks of being off the lamictal, the side effects of the facial tics and the muscle tremors stopped, but the memory issues did not stop. Okay, okay. So where did you go from there then? Well, when I had my MRI, I um, I, 
I went to, I was working for a hospital, and I went through that hospital to a neurologist associated with the hospital that I knew, and he read the MRI, and I sat down, and we, my wife and I talked with him about the muscle tremors, facial tics, and the memory issues. Well, he wanted to expand the investigation into the, the memory issues because he said there's more there. It's not a medication issue. There's something more there. So he, he, the first thing he ordered was a PET scan and neuropsych testing. And, of course, the way the medical field is set up, I had to wait almost six months for my first neuropsych testing. Oh, but he went and did the, the PET scan, and the PET scan came back abnormal, showing um, subtle signs of Alzheimer's-type dementia in the parietal lobe of my brain, which I interpreted it as it showed the 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 tangles and the plaques in the brain in that area. Okay. Now, how did that affect you? Were you a little nervous going to, you know, your own workplace to have that testing done? Well, luckily it wasn't in the same building, but I I was very, very concerned that the word was going to get out that, hey, Steve got a, has a, a severe memory issue because I wanted to get to the bottom of it before any of it came out. And uh, But it worked out that Dr. Camilo kept everything in-house and nothing went anywhere else. Well, that's, that's nice. Because I, I can see where that would be. That would be kind of scary, you know, to think about because you, you want to know the answers, but you want to protect your your income and, you know, you don't want to jeopardize your job. And I, I hear people all the time say they're so worried about what's going to happen with their job. Now, when you started, you know, initially noticing these changes, and it, it, you know, from what you said, your wife noticed the changes and the kids noticed the changes because communication was breaking down a little bit, were people at work picking up on on any of the, the memory loss issues that you were struggling with? My feelings got hurt by a coworker because she says, well, you must have severe ADD. And oh. I just kind of looked at her and I, how do you respond to that? You know, you don't want to tell them what's going on, but yet you want them to know that, no, it's not ADD. And I just said, more or less explained to her that there's a lot going on in my life and, you know, I'm trying to balance everything out and left it at that. But um, a lot of my coworkers were very cool about it. You know, they, they just... They did everything they could to make my job less stressful. It's just in this one area of where I had to work where it was it was harder because nobody understood and nobody wanted to take the time to understand. Sure, sure. It's, it's your job and you're the technical expert in that area. Yep. And, and, you know, everybody's jobs are tight on time frame and, and things. So I can, un- I can understand that where people want help, but, you know, everyone's kind of in overload to, to begin with. Um, with the process. Now, you know, we've talked offline, and if you wouldn't mind sharing with people a little bit in more detail kind of your exploratory process. You know, you said that you did the PET scan and something showed up there, but you couldn't get, you know, your psych, your neuropsych test for <clears throat> six months, which has to be awful sitting and waiting on that. I, I remember needing some medical procedures and having to wait, you know, wondering do I have cancer or not, and and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. The stress is going to kill me here. Yeah. You know, waiting well, on that stuff, the unknown. Yeah. But that was the exploratory part for the, took, well, 
the store, I'm, excuse me, I'm sorry, it's part of my brain just trying to catch up with my mouth. Um, the exploratory process started in uh, October of 2010, lasted, I was finally diagnosed in February of 2012. Um, in that process, I saw uh, two different neurologists. Um, I had two sets of neuropsych testing, um, tons of blood work. It, it was just amazing. But when I met the, the first neurologist, and after the PET scan came back, he said, Steve, you've got some sort of dementia. I'm not going to call it Alzheimer's, but I want to send you to a specialist because this is beyond my scope and you need to do this and this and this. But we need to get the neuropsych testing. And like I said earlier, it was six months. Well, my wife and I grabbed the bull by the horns, and we called a few different places in the state of North Carolina where we lived, and we were able to get me in for a neuropsych testing in two months. We got those results and took those to doctor, the doctor and the neurologist, and he looked at them, and he said, well, they're saying it's related to your depression. And I said, well, it's not my depression, and I've been on medication for depression. My depression isn't out of whack. I've been, you know, doing fine with that. My wife reiterated to him. Well, then he asked about family history, and I had to let him know that my mom has MS and she has dementia and she has lupus. And then he found out that my dad, on his side of the family, his brother, sister, and mother all had Huntington's Korea disease. He right away said, well, well that's got to be what's wrong with you. I said, no, it can't be wrong with me. My dad doesn't have it, and if my dad doesn't have it, I can't have it. Well, he says, well, we're going to send you to a specialist. We're going to get um, genetic testing. So, of course, you wait four months, five months, you get in with the specialist. I got in with him and sat down, and we were discussing with him, and he, we went over everything that the first neurologist had done. We went over the neuropsych testing and the PET scan, he says, well, I'm not even going to look at the PET scan because I really don't rely on them. And I looked at him, I said, well, you're a specialist, sir. Uh, he says, but it, it, it just doesn't weigh either way for me, so I'm not going to be concerned with that. Um, he said, I am concerned about the hunting disease. And I, again, responded to him that, well, my dad didn't have it, and I couldn't have it. And he says, well, we really need to do the genetic testing for that. He said, but what I'm going to start out with is we're going to do a bunch of blood lab work, you know, the, the B12, the vitamin B12, to make sure that you're not deficient and all those other deficiencies that can cause memory issues. So he did all that first. I went back, got the results for those. Those were all normal. He said, well, I want to do the genetic test. Well, in that time frame, I had called my dad and said, hey, Dad, were you genetically tested for Huntington's disease? And my dad said, yes, I have been tested, and I was negative. So when I told him that, he says, well, then all I can really do for you is another neuropsych test. And I said, well, I just had one four or five months ago. Does it really pay? He says, well, that's the logical next step. I says, well, isn't there any genetic testing we can do for Alzheimer's? He says, well, you don't warrant that. Wow. I said, okay. So did another set of neuropsych testing. Of course, they came back and they said, well, well it's your depression. And my wife was livid. My uh I, I, I've seen my wife angry. She was very composed talking to the doctor when we got these results. But but I went back to my primary care physician who had been walking through this with me, and I've been seeing her for nine years now, and I was in tears explaining to her that, hey, 
They're saying it's the depression. And my primary care says, Steve, it is not your depression. I've been seeing you. I know you. I know there's something wrong with you. We need to get you to somebody else. So she referred me to Dr. Beliri with the Alzheimer's Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I went in and saw him the first time when we sat down. And every time you go in for uh, with someone with a, a, a type dementia, they do a quick 15, 20-minute um, neuropsych test. It's just standard across-the-board test that they do. And I scored a 22 on it, which is kind of low. And we discussed with him, and we went through, and um, he said, well, I want to do some more blood tests, and I want to do this, this, and this. And he says, I'll see you again in, in three months. But he says, I cannot diagnose you now because dementia is a pro- process that is a progression, and you've got to follow the progression before you can diagnose it. And this is the first time I've seen you. He says, I understand that you've been through this, this, and this. He says, I will review all of your tests and everything, but I want to see you again in in three months. Well, we went back in three months, and he did another, the, the, the standard test again, and I dropped five points from the previous one, and it alarmed him. And he says, well, I want to do an EEG. He says, I don't like your PET scan. And the neuropsych test, in your verbal cognition, Steve, you have a 40% deficit in comparison across the board. Now, why they're saying that is your depression when you've done it on two tests, I don't understand. You have some sort of, of, of dementia, and we need to get to the bottom of it. So I left the office then. He did an EEG. I went back. Three months later, and he retested me with his standard test, and I dropped six points. And the EEG was normal. But he knew then because my wife and I had put together, um, I I can't handle crowds. Um, My brain filter for noise, if there are seven people talking in a room, I hear all seven people at the same, even if, my wife is talking directly to me. I can't hear just my wife's voice. I cannot handle crowds. And other variables that had come up, and he says, well, he finally says, no, you've got Alzheimer's type dementia. That had to just be deafening to your ears in hearing that. It, it, it crushed me, but at the same time it relieved me because being told that it's depression, it's all in your head, you've got depression, you need to get yourself under control, you need to do this, you need to do that. It was a, it, it alleviated that, but it also crushed me at the same time. And I sit here today on the phone with you now, scared to death of what's ahead of me. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to put it. Well, and, you know, it's so common. I hear that all the time. People are... are are so actually excited to get a diagnosis because they feel like a dog chasing their tail. They know something's wrong. They know a lot of times what the doctors are pointing at just doesn't make sense because they know themselves, they know their body, they know their mind. And and it's so frustrating in the time that lapses. And so it, everyone says it's just kind of a relief once you finally have a, a good solid diagnosis because then you can at least move forward even though it's scary at least you can develop some type of action plan 
I think the other exactly, thing. Exactly, and that's that that's exactly it is you, you you get that in your mind and then you say, Okay, this is what I'm gonna do because my life's not over, but I have to make drastic changes. And um my primary care physician and my neurologist said, Steve, you are going through a drastic life change now and it is gonna affect everyone and everything that you do. So you've got to adapt to different things and how you do things, and that's that's the biggest thing. Is but now I know what I have to do to be able to function daily. And I and I think one of the reasons you know that I, you know I started this show was, um, and the the resource website and everything that I'm doing um, with Alzheimer's and dementia is, yes, you have to make changes, but so do the rest of us. And, you know, I am so thankful for you coming on the show and talking so openly and honestly about this disease because that's the only way you're going to teach us what changes we have to make because we don't know. You know, we're on the outside looking in and we're kind of second-guessing everything. But even when you just talked about the background noise, that is something we all take for granted. I know I'm starting to take it not so much for granted anymore because I'm getting older and so background noise is starting to bother me. But understanding that all of that stuff makes it so much more difficult for you to communicate. And yeah. those, are, those are things we can change. Those are things we can really modify and control in a lot of situations. And so it's... Well, the other thing that, that really is... is and people don't really understand is I can't handle compound questions. When I pull into McDonald's and I place my order and they say, do you want that um, medium or large, I go blank because Mm -hmm. I can't, I completely go completely blank and I'll say, excuse me, and they'll ask me again and I still cannot grasp that it's a simple, you know, medium large, it's simple, but my brain can't take, two things at one time. Um, I was sitting in the living room because we gave um, my my older sister, I'm, I'm home in Wisconsin at my parents' um, for the first time in a year and a half, and we told my older sister my diagnosis on, on Sunday, and she just started bombarding me with questions, and my kid's sister, who I'm a little, I, I informed earlier to kind of break the ice in the family, and I had asked her to make sure that that didn't happen, had to slow her down. And she asked me, well, why can't I ask you questions? I said, you can ask me questions, but I can only take one at a time. You ask me two questions, I hear the first one, I begin to answer it, you ask me the second one, then I totally forget what you asked me the first one, I can't answer either question. That's how my brain works. We, you know, And it, it's scary, it's to be honest, I've been told that it's annoying talking to me, trying to talk to me because they don't want to slow people don't want to slow their conversations down. Well, and I have to tell you, you are doing a fabulous job right now. You are doing absolutely a phenomenal job telling your story and so again, you know, don't take that burden on of the rest of us have to change because you can only do so much as as a person who has dementia. And it really is up to the rest of us to knock it off and slow down yep. and get over ourselves. And, yep, um, exactly. and, and there's so much um, that, that you're here to teach us. 
in terms of, um, you know, that's what I found with, with my mom's disease and just the work that I do. Um, I appreciate so much the fact that I have been forced to slow down. Because I was psycho. I mean, I was running around doing 10 million things and probably none of them really well. Um, though, I, you know, I looked good. It, it, it appeared well and it went smooth. Um, but inside, I was a bundle of nerves and I really didn't have um, the connection and the grace and the um, the satisfaction in my life that I do now because I do slow yeah. down and I appreciate the little things so much more um, because I don't And that's have, one thing I'm learning, too. And, and I'm that, learning that also. Oh, and it's it's such a gift It's uh, because I didn't realize how many things I was missing out on. I, you know, I had no, I, I really, I didn't have a clue. And, and you know, yeah. I, I like to think I'm a smart person, but um, it was really, um, it was really an awakening. This whole process has really been an awakening. And when I look at people like you and Rick Phelps and Norms McNamara and Richard Taylor, who are really making such a powerful difference, and so many others I can't even name, in terms of... Well, Rick has, Rick has become uh, a very, very close friend of mine, and and he has inspired me. He's the one that inspired me to do this show, and there's there's other things that I'm going to get involved in, because awareness has is, is got to get out there. We've got to get people to understand that, you know, this isn't an old person's disease. And the other thing is you don't have to put them in a closet because they have it. We're, we're people yet. We have emotions. We have feelings. You know, um, I don't want to become a hermit. I can't handle noises. I can't handle um, crowds. I, I, you know, all those different aspects. But I still don't want to just sit in my living room because that's the only place I'm comfortable. I want to get out and I want to socialize. And and but the way to do that is if you bring awareness out and people understand the disease, they can help you be comfortable with doing these things. And that's what I want to do. Oh, exactly, exactly. And it is about breaking tasks down. I mean, we don't have to give you know ten step directions. You know, I yep. mean, it, it really it's not necessary. <laughs> to do that, and I mean, we can learn to to break things down into smaller pieces. And when we do that, again, for me personally, I have just found a new, refreshed appreciation for for what I'm doing, for what I'm involved in, well, and it's so cool. Well, that's like me now because my wife is on the road and she's a travel nurse, and I'm home alone a lot and we'll set up a meal plan and this is what I'm going to do. I find that I enjoy making my meals more now because I've got to pay attention to what I'm doing with the directions because if I don't, it's going to come out wrong, you know, and I'm not going to be able to eat it because I did this or I didn't do this or I forgot this. Or, but it, doing things slower has just made me learn to enjoy what I'm doing more because you're paying attention instead of just going through it and getting it done. It's, wow, this is kind of cool. I'm, you know, this is, it's fun rather than just get it done and go on. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I kind of relate it to eating a meal. Um, you can wolf it down really fast and, and, you know, run through McDonald's or, you know, any of the fast food places or, or whip up one of those meals in 10 minutes or less 
and it be, and nourish your body, but you really haven't yep. tasted it and you haven't felt the texture of the food and you haven't, you know, um, taken a whiff of the aroma to enjoy that versus when you sit down and you slow down, I mean, even a peanut butter jelly sandwich can taste much better than, um, you know, when you enjoy all the things that make up the meal, you know, the, the textures, exactly. the, the smells, the, the just the time you're sitting, even if you're sitting by yourself in silence. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that in terms of just slowing our minds down and letting ourselves be um, in the thoughts that might come in, you know, at that point. So I, I just, I, you know, I appreciate you so much taking the time to, to tell your story and being so willing. And like I said, you're doing an absolutely fantastic job and giving us wonderful examples because that's one of the downfalls, again, is we need to learn what is it that we could do different. So, you know, getting back to the noise factor in the large crowds, I was just talking with someone the other day and they were talking about, you know, every year they would have a big birthday party for their mother who has dementia. And one of the daughters goes, you know, she doesn't like the big crowds. She can't do the big crowds anymore. It would be much better for us to have multiple birthday parties and gatherings with different people in smaller settings because she would she would be able to engage that, appreciate that. It would occupy more of her time um, because yep. it would be a more intimate setting. But family is fighting that because of the fact that that's not the way we always used to do it. Well, you know, nothing nothing stays the same forever. And so, again, who's who's the party for? Is it for the rest of the family who wants to see everybody, or is it really for the person that you're you're having the party for? And it kind of gets back to that person-centered care. You know, when we're giving care, a lot of times we honestly think we're being person-centered, but it really is about us. Um, yeah, and one bad thing about that that I can relate to is that that lady that you're talking about that's the party's for, when you get overstimulated because of that, you shut down so you're not even at the party. And that's mm-hmm. even worse for her than than anything else because then she's not getting anything out of it because I know when I get into big settings I shut down and I get it's it's a it's a weird feeling but you shut down and it's like you're in a tunnel and the only one that can bring me out of that tunnel is my wife or a family member who's who gets directly in front of me and starts talking to me and drive takes me out of that situation and I get away from that noise where I can start to function again so that's you know that again that's that's great to know on on even how to approach that situation because I think a lot of us will see this if we if we pay attention enough to notice um, but sometimes we get so wrapped up in the event that we don't even we don't even notice because somebody might be sitting there disengaged um, and exactly. We can look at that in a couple of ways. Oh, they're just sitting quiet. But, you know, when it's for an extended period of time, my mom used to do that. She, Her social skills were really great. She not, didn't want to draw attention. She didn't want to make a scene, so she would just pull back and kind of go into a shell 
and she could still sometimes even smile, so she didn't look like she didn't know what was going on or didn't care even more so what was going on. Um, but then there were other times where it just got to be way too much, where she just she you know physically needed to leave the environment um, because yep. it was upsetting to her because it was so loud. And, and I don't know if this happens to you, Steve, but um, I've been told with some people that they find that their senses are more heightened so that they can, um, you know, they, they hear things more loudly than they used to. Uh, exactly, that- yes, yes. Okay. Uh, I, um, I, I can't handle noise, any kind of noise at all, and it it, it um, it, it it causes headaches, or it causes me to, to just kind of fade out, and I just you you hit the nail on the head with that one. That is that is one that that I really really don't like. Is I, I it's like I said earlier. I have no filter in my brain anymore to noises. I hear everything, and everything sounds the same. And if if you're tapping your pen and someone's um, clicking on a typewriter, I hear them both, and it just it. it it's too much. I've got to get away. Okay. Okay. Now, how about um, like um, smells and odors? Is that do you see a raised sense in that as well of what you smell? No, the odors. I've I've always my wife will uh, agree with this. I've always had a very sensitive nose, so odors hasn't really changed. The thing that frustrates me now is it's like my taste buds are deadened. Everything, uh, my taste, I just, nothing really tastes good anymore. And I, I'm, that's a question I'm going to bring up to my neurologist because I'm, I'm hoping he's going to say it's a medication thing. But my, I just, foods just don't taste the same to me that they used to. Okay. Um, how about your eyesight? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this memory cafe, and one of, one of the members said, he can really only see what's directly in front of him. Even though he's looking straight ahead, his peripheral vision has gone. He, he really can't see things to the side. Um, you well, that's a great question for me because I just had to go in and get my yearly eye exam. And um, my, my eye doctor, who I adore, told me that I have no signs. Um, my vision has decreased, but my vision has decreased because of my age. Okay. Um, he says I don't have any signs of the Alzheimer's effects that affect vision yet, which is good because I mean I've got bifocals and I need bifocals to read, but that's that's something that um, I've had bifocals now for four years. So that's and of course my prescription had to be um, made a little stronger this year. But he said that my vision is is normal. To where for my age, rather than being worse because of the Alzheimer's, which really made me feel good. Okay, great. Yeah, because one of the members, um, it was actually the wife that noticed. She said, he, you know, I'll tell him to, to look for something, you know, and it's, she's like, when I look, it's right in front of me. She said, it might be off to the side just to hear, um, but he just can't see it at all. And so it's become a little bit more of a of a tunnel vision thing. The other thing I'm going to ask you um, is with touch, um, and I think I think I know the answer to this. But when you are touched, does that um, jolt you or scare you? Are you more sensitive to that? Not really. Okay. Not really. Okay. I, I I seem to be okay with that. Okay. 
because uh, I think you know my my best guess in watching this over thirty years with my mom is that her other senses have declined, and so she doesn't know uh-huh. someone's approaching, and so then that scares her. And so again, coming up, if somebody comes up from the front versus the side, you know, as as the disease progresses or as things change. But again, it's being aware as a care partner um, or just a mm-hmm. professional and making adjustments uh, so, you know, that that doesn't, doesn't occur because that's, I mean, nobody likes to be scared. I mean, my daughter and I, we run into each other in the house sometimes and we both just scream bloody murder. You know, one's coming up the steps and the other one's coming down and we're in our own little world. And, I mean, your heart yeah. just starts beating. <laughs> and, and that's just not fun. So we don't want to do that to anybody. So, again, it's just being a little bit more more conscious about that. Now, at, at this stage in your um, disease, Steve, are are you still able to drive? Yeah, I'm 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 driving. Uh as a matter of fact, um I drove from North Carolina to Wisconsin, but I had to very specifically explain to my neurologist my route. But see I've made the drive nineteen, twenty times, so I'm familiar with it. I had to drive through Chicago. I had no problems driving through Chicago. I've done it a million I know what to expect. He said, well, would you drive through Atlanta? And I'd say, well, no, I can't even drive into downtown Charlotte anymore. And, I mean, I've driven in Charlotte, but I can't do it because I, I – it's not a panic attack, but it gets to the point where I get – my brain gets overstimulated to the point where I can't decide which way to go. Okay. I drive to the grocery store. I drive to Walmart. I drive to the hunting land that I hunt at. I, I drive to my daughter's. But I don't drive anywhere that I've never driven before. I refuse to drive there because I know um, it's like my my doctors, um, my my primary care physician, and my psychologist that I see to help me cope with everything. Don't set yourself up to fail, Steve. That's what they keep telling me. And I don't want to get into a situation where um, I drive and I I have to panic and pull over and then I'm stuck. I don't get lost, but I still if, if, if I have to make a quick decision, well, I should have turned here or I've got to turn there, and I can't do that anymore. My brain doesn't allow me to make quick decisions like that. I can't do it, so I don't do it. Okay. Well, that, and I would imagine something like, you know, people say, well, just use the GPS thing, but I would imagine that would be kind of complicated if it's not well, it, um, a piece of equipment that you've used a lot. The thing with the GPS that I've learned, because my wife has one, and we use it when we go certain places, and she'll be driving. When you make a wrong turn, it says, you know, recalculating route. As soon as I hear that, I panic. And it's not really a panic again. It's an overstimulation. My brain says, I've got to fix this. And that's one thing with this disease is if, if, if something's wrong and it needs to be fixed, I need to fix it now. I can't wait 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day or two, it's got to get done now or or I, I I stress over it and then it makes my condition worse. Okay, okay. Well, that, but again, and that's a, that's a good thing for, for us to know and I think that that's pretty common. Um, I had one woman um, tell me, uh, you know, about her, her husband used to be really active in the garage and he was looking for something and he he now gets um, what she says more compulsive in terms of getting something finished or finding something. He can't let it go um, because it's you can't. 
You can't. No, you can't. And, um, you know, very, very common. Um, And, again, something that we have to be able to understand and let go and look at it again that, you know, it's it's not hurting the person. It's not hurting anybody else. And if they're busy... And you know they're feeling you know productive. It, you know it's okay if it's causing a lot of stress. Um, you know then maybe it's not a healthy situation. Um, you know, but it's it's something that you know is just kind of part of the part of the process in terms of dealing yep. with things. Can you are you comfortable sharing with us how your kids felt about your diagnosis? You know, given well, that they're so young. Well, not not. Young. Not to hurt, not to hurt my daughter's feelings, but my daughter became my mother hen. <laughs> she, um, she, she really, she really did. When, when, when I first was diagnosed with the dementia, we kind of went in stride. But as things progressed and she started spending more quality time with me, she, she really, really started to smother me. And we've had some awesome conversations. And um, she calls me every day, sometimes twice a day. But the smothering has stopped, but it, it it's just her her heart was broke. And mm-hmm. um, my wife is a, a geriatric nurse. She's been doing nursing home nursing for over 22, 23 years. And now she specializes in, and she's a, a consultant for a corporation who owns nursing homes. But she's done um, Alzheimer's care. And my kids grew up going into the nursing homes and seeing people with Alzheimer's. So they've got that perspective and it scares them. My son is a sophomore in college, and uh, he, when he first found out and that I was sick, he totally withdrew and did not communicate with me other than when I'd call him. He would not call me or anything. Well, he found out last month. I was diagnosed in February. Well, we waited and we told him last month when he was home what my diagnosis was because he came home for spring break. And... Um, he took it well, but he was angry that we waited to tell him. But we just wanted to tell him in person rather than over the phone. Um, Tyler is my best friend, and we talk about everything. And that role with him has changed because there's aspects of this disease that I can't share with him because he doesn't need to know. So it changes the role. But he's still my best friend. It's just you've got to decide what to share and what not to share. And that makes life difficult for him and I. But he understands that and he accepts that. Neither one of us like it, but as, you know, but you do what you can as a parent to protect your kids, and that's what I've got to do. You know, it just brings tears to my eyes because I can just feel the love that you you have with your family, and it's just so precious and so nice and, and so beautiful um, that everyone's trying to be respectful. When you talk about your daughter being a mother hen, I can I can picture my daughter popping into that role, you know, of wanting to take care and and, and make sure everything is okay and and not wanting to lose the roles that you have with one another um, because of the disease. And and I think it's wise that you're protecting that um, because yeah. so many times people get swallowed up by the disease. And you know you're really saying, "Hey, I'm I'm still Steve. You're still my son. That's that's not that's not an option to go away. You know we are going to yeah. maintain that. It might change over time, 
um, even like it has with my mom and I, you know, she doesn't, she can't say my name and she, you know, people say, does she know you? And it's like, well, I don't know that for sure because she can't respond. But I do know for sure that she feels safe and comfortable and happy for the most part when I'm well, around. And that's all I need. I'd, I'd like to share this too, that um, Tyler, um, he's he's going to um, North Carolina School of the Arts for Sound Engineering and Sound Design and it's his dream, and he told me back in um, December of last year that, Dad, you know, this is all going on. If I need to quit school to come home and take care of you, I will quit school to come home and take care of you. Um, and you you look at him, and my heart's bleeding because my son wants to give up his dreams for me, but yet, you know, you've got to reaffirm to him that, no, I'm okay you can do this, and you fulfill your life, and I'll continue on, and there'll be a time when I may need you to let go of something to come care for me, but you're not going to give up what you've got now. And my daughter's done the same thing. She says, Dad, you know, do, do I need to change my job? Do I need to do this? Do I need, do you need me at home? Do you need me to move back home? Do you, you know, they want to give of themselves for me, and yet as a father, no, I want them to fulfill their lives. You know, I don't want this to be a debilitating thing for all of us. Let me physically worry about the physical and where I'm going. You guys continue your lives, but there's going to be times when you're going to have to rally around me to maybe lift me up because I hit a dark spot but it's not going to be a permanent thing. You know, I don't want that for my children. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is wonderful. Now, how about, um, you know, you said with, you know, you told your parents and your, your siblings. How did how did they take it? I know um, you had mentioned that your, your sister didn't really understand that, you know, she needs to slow down and ask questions differently. But, but how did how did your parents take the diagnosis? Let's start there. Mm-hmm. When I initially let my dad know, it was complete 100% denial and anger. This can't happen. It's an old pre-sensitive disease, and and you can't have it because you're my son. And the, the anger wasn't centered towards me, but it was centered that, you know, this cannot happen to, to you. You know, you're too important to me. You know, I, I just, just did not want to accept it. Um, my kid sister accepted it right away was very angry. She was still angry, and she's probably going to remain angry because she says it's not fair. My older sister, um, she wanted to know the why, which that's always everybody's question is, why you? Well, you know what? Everybody's got uh, an MS gene. Everybody's got an Alzheimer's gene. Everybody's got a cancer gene. Everybody's got all these different genes in their body. What sets them off, we don't know, and doctors really don't understand, and they don't know. Mine was set off. I don't know what triggered it, and that's the way I explained it to her, and I've got it. I told her I'm glad I've got it and you don't, and we'll leave it at that. But I've known there was something wrong for two, two and a half, three years. I was told back in uh, October, November of 2010 that, you know, you've got dementia. So I knew there was something wrong. Well, I had to go through the grieving process with that, well, now my family in the last month have all found out. Now they've got to go through the process, and they're going to have to come to terms and deal with it as they can. I can't help them do that, but I can answer their questions to the best of my ability, but that's all I can do for them. 
it's the same thing with my kids and my wife. You know, we're, we're, and luckily they're there in, in North Carolina, so we're doing it together. They're in Wisconsin doing it, so they don't see the changes that happen every day. But you know, but it, it, it's a it's a crappy process that people have to go through, but it, we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, how about medical staff in terms of of treating you? And and you know, it, I mean, it was quite the process that you had talked about just to get your diagnosis almost two years. I mean, I just I can't even imagine the frustration. But are there are there any things you would like to tell medical professionals when dealing with someone who comes in and says, I think you know, I'm having some memory problems. Do you have some tips for medical professionals in dealing with someone I, like you? I really don't know if it's tips, but the one thing that I want to relate to every medical person in the world is Listen to me, the patient. I don't care what your preconceived ideas are. I don't care about what, like with me, you know, everybody thought it was Huntington's disease because it was in the family. Family history has a lot to do with it, but you've got to listen to me and what I feel and what what's, what my complaints are and evaluate it at face value rather than having a preconceived notion and and trying to run with it because I know my body better than any doctor will ever know my body. And if my my body hurts and it hurts in a certain area and I tell you it hurts and you're telling me, oh, well, it's just a pulled muscle, when after investigating and you really, oh, well, you do have a fracture. You know, it, it it's just you've got to listen to your patients and try to understand where they're coming from. And what really sucks is with this disease, I can't always get across exactly what I want to say because it's in my brain, but my brain and my mouth don't work together. So you've got to give me time to express what I'm feeling. Because when when I finally saw Dr. Valeri and I was able to express everything I felt, and he went through the, I had notes and notes and notes that I was writing down every day of what I was feeling, and he went through those he took the time to look at them and evaluate that, and he put it together. And that's what a, a, a patient needs to do is find a doctor that wants to listen to them, not just right away say, well, no, it's this. You've got to take the time to listen to your patients. I think that's extremely, extremely good advice and uh, because we all know our own bodies and, our, and our, you know, we pull our families in, you know, most people do, to support this process. And there's got to be a way to communicate. I know we used to um, fax information to the doctor ahead of time and talk with, we ended up getting a really good rapport with my mom's doctor's nurse. And um, because the doctor didn't always have time, and then she could sum it up, you know, for him, and, and that was just a, that was life changing for us. Um, in exactly. Of of how smoothly things went, and it was such a simple process. It didn't have to take a lot of time, but by documenting and um, having that information there, um, it, it was good for all parties because you forget, I forget um, what happened and what time of day it was and what might have been a trigger. And all of a sudden you can start seeing some of these patterns emerge that can make a huge, huge impact when we all make some adjustments together. Um, well, that's part of my doctor's um I've, I've had a couple of really, really bad spells, and I've called him right away. And um, 
uh, I understand them now, but what he says is, Steve, now that you've had them, now you're going to be able to figure out coping skills. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing with this disease that you have to do is you've got to learn to cope with with where you're going and the the changes that you feel. And they're not fun, but if you can figure out a way to cope with them, it makes your days a lot better and your dark days aren't as, as often if you feel the yourself going into a a certain state of isolation, if you can figure a way to cope with that to be able to hold yourself where you're at, your days are better rather than being an isolated day. And that's one thing that that I'm finding out with some of the things that's happening with me is I've got to find out certain coping strategies to be able to help me get through my day. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. And and I would think even just connecting with you know, like memory people and just being able to talk with people who are going through similar situations, I I would think that that's got to be a great resource and support for you. Um, Yes, I've had some very bad days, and I've been able to Skype with with Rick Phelps and Harry Urban and um, Cheryl Kearney. We've talked, and because they feel what I feel, they've they've been through what I've been through and it, it helps me be able to accept what I'm at and I can understand it and then it, I'm not so angry and I'm not so scared of what's going to happen next because the sharing on memory, the sharing on memory people is, is it, it's a gift from God. It really is because it, it, it's a lifesaver for me when I have my days and I'm here in Wisconsin. I don't have computer access here. So I'm, I'm going through, uh, memory people withdrawal, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, but, you know, that just says how much uh, a part it has become. You know, I mean, it's part of your family. It, 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 it becomes, yes. you know, um, so ingrained and so important, and people need to realize the importance of the support of just being able to talk and share, and not that... Not that anyone's necessarily going to have the answers, but just as Leanne just wrote, knowing you're not alone, you know, and she says, you're so right, Steve, and, and Leanne is from Memory People. Who is looking yeah, Leanne is wrote. phenomenal. She is, she is such a sweetheart. She is so phenomenal. And, you know, I, I, I found Memory People when they were very, very young, and I've been with them, and I'm going to stick with them, and I, I love what, 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 they're, what they're about because, and I... I'm practically going to start crying just thinking about what what they have done for me because it's it's you're not alone and you can go in there and if you're having a bad day and you can vent in there and they you'll get a hug with uh, 900 quotations around it which <laughs> it, it, it's a beautiful thing but it's what we need people with 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 the disease we have to have some place to go to be able to feel, I don't know, human maybe. I'm sorry if you can accept that, but you can feel human on memory people because you are who you are, and there you're accepted for who you are. You don't have to put on a persona to to be accepted. You're just accepted for where you're at with the disease. You're accepted where you're at as a caregiver, and if a caregiver is struggling and they want to ask for advice, you can ask for advice. We'll never give medical advice, but um, my wife's been a geriatric nurse and she knows Alzheimer's. She might throw out a little tip there that might help you turn the tide in in a behavioral or whatever. 
and that's what it's all about. It's not about medical advice or anything like that. It's just about helping us cope with day-to-day struggles that we have. Well, to me, it all goes back to I I just developed a tool called um, Conscious Caring, and it's all about Maslow's theory and the hierarchy of feeling a need to belong. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that that memory people does is it makes people feel like they belong. It gives you purpose back um, because you're helping others. You know, you're not... You're not just somebody with the disease plucked on a shelf. You are part of a community, and you are a beautiful, meaningful piece of that community that is always giving and sharing, and it's just it's so, it's so cool. Um, Leanne just wrote in here again, we walk this together if it's good or bad. Um, you know, there's yep. no sugarcoating it. It's just what we do and sometimes you just need someone to listen someone sometimes someone may have gone through what you've gone through and has some advice it may work it may not work but just to know somebody cares enough to hear your story um, and your pain and celebrate your joy because there's a lot of that that goes on too as well as you being able to help others in similar situations it's you can't really put it into words, the power of that community. Um, and that you can't. Sense. It's, it's really, it's so, it's so, so cool. Well, do you have, I can't believe our hour has just blown by here, Steve, and you've just done yeah, such a great job with giving us so much insight and so many wonderful tips of, of how to maybe be able to help um, someone who has dementia and still be able to, engage and and have fun and and celebrate life like we should. Do you have any words of wisdom for someone who is maybe contemplating, you know, I've got memory problems. What would you tell that person who is thinking, my memory is not what it used to be? What would you tell them? Well, the first thing I'd say is you, you know your body better than anybody, so believe what your body's telling you. Then secondly is if you're going to, going to approach it and, and, and get into the medical field, I hope you have a good general practitioner that can refer you to a neurologist that is caring because you can go to neurologist after neurologist after neurologist, but if you don't find one that cares about their patients, you're not going to get to the bottom of it. And I went through two separate neurologists where I was just browbeaten and told, well, your depression has messed you up and that's what it is and you need to live with it. And now, you know, and I said, well, that's not a good enough answer, and I found a neurologist that would listen to me. You've got to have doctors that will listen to you, that truly care about you, and you're not a number, and you're going to get the answers that you need. And, I mean, I didn't like being told I had Alzheimer's, but it was I needed to know what it was so I knew where I was going and how I was going to live my life. That's the most important thing that I can say is just make sure you find someone that cares about you that is going to treat you like a human being and not a number. And I, I think that's wonderful advice because a lot of times we get referred out and then we just go with the flow. But I always tell people, you know, when I've been in real estate for 25 years, I always told people, if you don't feel comfortable and you don't feel confident with me, then I'm not your match. And that's that right. Goes, that goes with our doctors too. So if your gut is saying this isn't a good match, ask for another referral because there is somebody out there who is. And, you know, we went through the same thing as a family where 
and again, this was a long time ago, and the medical profession has come a long ways, but I think the society as a whole still has a long, long ways to go. But, you know, my mom's doctor, it was her primary, just kept blowing it off to hormones. And um, he didn't want to go there because he didn't specialize in it. It wasn't something that was really discussed. And so he was, I think, uncomfortable with it and didn't have the expertise. And, you know, it it is something that needs expertise. Um, But but it's more than just being able to read a PET scan. It's about being able to read your patient and engage with them and really listen um, and not yes. not everybody has those skills, and you know you deserve you deserve that. So if you're out there and you're you're scared and you've got memory problems, you know go to the doctor because every person that you'll talk to, like Steve, will say once he got diagnosed, it was a blessing, it was a relief. As scary as it was, it was a relief because you could then make a plan. Prior to that. Can. The other thing is, though, it, it may be just a B12 deficiency. There's so many different variables for it. You know, it's not. Well, do I have Alzheimer's? It's I've got a memory issue. Let's 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 get to the problem and find out. Well, maybe it's a chemical imbalance. Maybe it's a B12 deficiency. Maybe it's this. Maybe you know you. But you definitely know your body, so get it checked out. But find someone you're comfortable with to, to work with. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all your time today, Steve. You did a great job. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, can they reach you on Facebook? They sure can. Okay. That, that'd be fine. Okay. And how um, I have here Pony Five Alive is what your what your name is. That is, that is correct. That is my name. Yep. That is my name on Facebook. Okay. So Pony P O N Y, and then the number five, and then Alive. Um, you can go ahead and reach Steve that way. And, again, thank you so much for all you're doing. You are just a, a fantastic advocate. And, oh, I do want to mention one thing, if it's okay, because you had mentioned to me that you're up for a really nice nomination. Um, can you talk about that? Please. Yeah, I was. Um, I approached my, my local chapel of the Alzheimer's Association um, about – a support group in other different areas, and they've got a forum going on this month, and I wanted to go to that, but, of course, it didn't work out for me to be able to go. But I got into a, a very lengthy conversation with one of the leaders of the, the, the association in my, my state, and they have they contacted the National, and someone from the National Alzheimer's Association has contacted me and asked me, to fill out the paperwork, they want to nominate me. They would like me to be on their national advisory board that for is the so cool. Association. That is so cool. If there's any way the rest of us can help support you in that, please let us know. Um, or if you want to um, give me that contact person's um, email address, I will email them a recording of this show because it might be something that they could utilize, too, in terms of, of helping raise awareness. But they could really hear what a wonderful job. And um, I guess you did. You just did a fantastic job today, Steve. You really did. So I, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I, like I said, I'm having a very good morning, and um, I'm blessed. God just uh, guided me through this, and it was it was wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I'm still coherent. Normally, after 30 minutes, I kind of get tongue-tied, and I'm done. But... We really did. We made it the hour. It's, it's amazing. 
Yep, you did. You should be really proud of yourself. You did absolutely fantastic. Well, I'm going to go ahead and um, pull in our next guest here. And so I'm going to go ahead and and um, and uh, introduce Alan Arnett. Uh, Alan has completed his journey climbing seven of the world's highest summits in a year. And Alan's been on our show a couple of different times. His mother had Alzheimer's disease, and he's just kind of been on this mission to make a difference. And he is now embarking on the Seven City Challenge Memories Are Everything campaign. So, Alan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hi, Lori. Doing great. How are you? Hey, I really enjoyed the segment with Steve. I don't know if he's still on or not, but I really enjoyed it. Oh yeah, he's he was just he gave us marvelous, marvelous ideas and, and um really great insight to to his journey and what it's like to have dementia. So it was fantastic having him on the show. I, I'm really excited to have you back because you know, you've come in several times during your climbs and maybe if we start out with if you can just do a short summary on what you did do with your climbing and then, you know, where where you're at right now. Um, and what's going on would be would be wonderful. Sure. Um, so, as some of your listeners may remember, uh, my mom uh, developed Alzheimer's um, in her. I guess it was in her early 60s, and um, and it took about nine years for it to take her life. And through that nine years, uh, it just opened my eyes. And the last three of her uh, years, I uh, took early retirement from a 30-year career with HP to overseer care and just kind of seeing it firsthand and and you know I can never walk in the shoes of a of a Rick or or what's how Steve just explained it but just from a you know from a son's perspective um and perhaps um you know from a, a an outsider's perspective of being very close to it it just devastated me in in seeing uh how it impacted an individual but probably more frustrating than that was the fact that there was nothing I could do other than just give my mom a lot of love and attention and care and, and just make sure that she had, you know, the best possible care to take care of herself. And and But I also was compelled to do something about this disease because I was shocked at the amount of money that was spent on research compared to other devastating diseases. And 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 I was shocked at the, at the impact on caregivers in terms of, uh, of higher rates of depression, and uh, just, you know, I was really representative, Lori, I think, of a lot of people. I was very ignorant of the disease. I didn't know a lot about it, and uh, so the more I learned about it, the more I was going to do something, so I decided to combine my passion of uh, mountain climbing with, you know, with, uh, with this cause and set a really big goal to climb the highest mountain on each one of the seven continents and do it in under a year, and, and I did it with the help of um, some sponsorship by um, by the uh, uh, chance of Alzheimer's immunotherapy and Pfizer, and we were able to reach about 30 million people around the world um, with what I call a message of hope, urgency, and need. And I was one of my proudest moments was being able to uh, stand on the summit of Mount Everest just about this time last year, May the 21st, and uh, to send out that message over a satellite telephone and dedicate that summit to. In that case, I did it to uh, to my mom and to all moms with Alzheimer's, but I also did one of my summits dedicated to uh, early onset and to people, uh, dads with Alzheimer's, and you know, in the the in the the whole gamut. So it was it was quite a year. Wow, it's hard to believe it was a year ago. You've just been traveling all around the world. It's been very fun to to watch, 
your journey and and what you have done. Can you tell us, you know, what what are you up to now? That you're well, you know, you know I. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, no, no. Go ahead. I'm. <laughs> so, well, I, I, you know, what I'm up to now is, I, yeah, I'm continuing to climb. I just got back from a, a climb in England, uh, the highest there, called uh, Ben Nevis. Um, it's a uh, by some standard, it's a little hill. It's only forty four thousand four hundred feet, but it's a uh, it's a hill with a lot of uh, a lot of attitude with it. <laughs> So, and it's also in Scotland, which has a lot of weather, and it was a great time climbing that mountain. But I was there in the U.K. uh, to attend uh, an international conference, the Alzheimer's Disease International Conference. And I was able to speak at that conference um, about my my Seven Summits journey and uh, show some pictures and talk about it. But more importantly was to uh, talk about my experience with my mom and and to continue to raise uh, the awareness and, you know, to get that message out. Very neat. Now, I, the uh, the ADI conference uh, over in Europe, I've always wanted to go to. What was that experience like for you? It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, if you ever get a chance to go to that one, it's um, it's a relatively small conference by these conference standards. There's a few hundred people. But what was important about it was it had representatives from every country around the world almost. And so I was able to listen to presentations from uh, Taiwan, uh, Australia, um, England, uh, and of course, you know, U.S. and others. And what really struck me, Lori, and, and I think Steve hit on this a minute ago. He talked about letting, you know, letting the individual uh, speak for themselves, and to, that there's an awful lot of stigma associated with dementia on a, on a broader term all around the world, and we often wonder if what we see here in the United States is the same as it is in, in Australia or Switzerland, and the answer is uh, unequivocal yes. That's the same issues around the world. Um, there's early onset around the world that uh, the public awareness, and, and just like my own personal case, is, uh, is really low. It's improving. Um, there's a need for uh, care for elderly, for improved uh, either facilities or in-home care, and I was really impressed by a lot of the presentations where uh, organizations had been able to put together grassroots efforts to influence public policy to bring uh, better health care programs. You know, a lot of these countries have uh, institutionalized health care programs, but they, did, they don't do a good job of taking care of dementia. And so through a lot of those efforts, they're able to increase the, uh, the rate of physician education uh, through helping in-home health care and, of course, facility health care as well. So I was just, I was very, very encouraged. I was very impressed that Alzheimer's and dementia has a growing level of visibility around the world. And um, one of the most important, one of the most impressive things I saw was a group uh, called the Scottish, let's see, what's this exact name? It's called the, um, the Scottish Dementia Working Group. And when Steve was talking, it really struck me that, what this is a group of individuals in Scotland that all have they've all been diagnosed with dementia and and uh, as early as uh, in their late 40s as like Steve is to in their in their 80s and what this group did they said you know what even though we've been diagnosed with it that doesn't mean our life is over you know Bob DeMarco he talks about that with with Dottie and and uh, Rick talks about that through his group and just it really this was a group of people there were eight of them they they gave a presentation they talked about how their life goes on that they're active they contribute to society 
and that it is totally unfair to to put those folks in the corner and just uh, just kind of forget about them. And but their spirit and their energy and uh, their sense of humor it was just fantastic. If you get a chance, go visit their website. It's, it's called the Scottish Dementia Working Group. Um, SDWG.org.uk. You can Google it also. Anyway, oh, it was great. great. It was fun. Yeah, I I am just so amazed what they're doing over in Europe. You know, I I saw an article on LinkedIn and I haven't read it yet about a dementia village where there's like 158 people mm-hmm. that you know live in this village, and I I'm anxious to go ahead and and read that. But let's get back to talking about you because I could I could talk about the world and how interconnected everything <laughs> is. I just I find it so. So fascinating, but I, I'm glad you stated that because I, I do think that we all think that we're isolated and we're siloed. And I mean, I, I talk with people all over the world as, as well, and you know, the issues really aren't that different. There might be a few cultural things that come up, but for the most part, everybody's struggling with the same thing um, and trying to find the joy and um, trying to raise awareness. And I think the collaboration that's happening around the world right now is just so exciting um, with what's going on. So can you tell us about your, your new um, kind of tours that you're doing and what, in a little bit more detail and, and what someone could expect if they came to one of your talks? And what the Well, I'm just uh, I'm trying to get out. Basically, I will talk to anywhere, any, any time, uh, any way, just uh, you know, just get me there, and we'll do. Well, I'll do the talk. And what I'm doing is, in fact, the next one coming up is in um, is for the uh, the Northern Nevada uh, Alzheimer's Association in Las Vegas later on this month. And what I what I do is I, I take my my seven summits journey. And you know, Lori, you running this radio show, you know as well as anybody out there that it's this is a difficult topic. And getting people to dedicate an hour or two to listen to it once a week or to come in and listen to a presentation about dementia, that's tough. It's tough. It's not the most uh, uplifting subject, and people sometimes choose to to ignore it, and ignorance is bliss. I'll go back to my own personal story that, that, that you just don't know what you don't know until you need to know it. So what I'm trying to do is get ahead of this. And by talking about the mountain climbing, it brings in a whole different group of people. Um, it brings in people, that, especially young people, that perhaps have a grandparent with dementia, in some cases that live, live with them. And I'm able to talk about, I mean, it's able to say, hey, let me talk about climbing these mountains. I'm going to talk about the natives of New Guinea that basically wanted to kill us because we weren't going to hire them to carry our bags. Or I'm going to talk about uh, going down to Antarctica and how pristine the sky was there and how, how perfectly quiet it was climbing the highest mountain there. And I'm going to talk about the, the Sherpas and the, the yaks in Nepal and and that, that day, that, that 4 o'clock in the morning on May 21st when it was so dark outside, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to stand on top of the world. I'm not going to make it for my fourth time, the summit Everest. But then as the sun started coming up, I was able to see that sunrise, and it gave me energy. I thought about all the people following me and was able to make it to the summit. I've got a wonderful video that I didn't even know was being made by a teammate, his Sherpa, and it shows me sitting on the summit of Everest and uh, talking on the cell phone, on the sat phone, rather, talking about uh, about my mom. 
So I'm able to take people through that journey, and indirectly, um, I talk about dementia. And I, like I said earlier, each one of the seven summits was dedicated to some aspect, from uh, from medical researchers to early onset to caregivers to moms and dads uh, across the gamut. And it's, I'm able to, to kind of bring home my own personal story with my mom and my two aunts, by the way, who also passed away from it, in a way that's, that is kind of educational, it's entertaining. And quite honestly, Lori, my goal is to have people go away after they've, they've laughed, they've cried, but more importantly, they've thought, and they've got themselves uh, a little bit more educated about the early warning signs. They've they've got themselves a little bit more prepared to have that difficult conversation with family members to about living wills and, and uh, directives and insurance and oh, all that family planning that we hate to even talk about but is such an important part, especially as the baby boomer generation continues to age. So that's what my presentation is. It's a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of education, and all put together, it's a, it's a pretty good show. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure it is because you're just such a great conversationalist, and I would imagine the pictures have got to be something else in the in the video because um, you know just on your blog you have captured some just incredible um, photography that is just absolutely amazing. Is some of that shared um, when you go out to your talks as well? Oh, you bet. Yeah, you know, one of my my biggest problems is I've got probably ten thousand pictures and videos that I took on these uh, on these climbs and and trying to figure out which one really captured what I'm trying to get across. But uh, like, if you go to my homepage right now at uh, alanarnett.com, you'll see a picture of Ben Nevis, and, um, and even I don't really talk about it because it wasn't one of the seven summits that uh, is kind of representative of what I do. And, but you know, I also talk about the culture of the various countries and. And another thing that struck me, Lori, and we talked about this before, was that I'll give you a real quick case point, was that when I climbed the highest in uh, Europe uh, called Mount Elbrus, I was on a team with uh, with eight Russians. And um, as I talked to them, uh, it, I was, you know, I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised that every one of the, those individuals, most of them had lived in Moscow, talked about their own personal story with Alzheimer's and with dementia and how in Russia they need to improve their, their way of dealing with this. Uh, so it really struck me that, uh, and again, it comes back to that international conference that, you know, Alzheimer's is not a it's not an American problem, it's not a British problem, it's not an old problem, young problem, a rich problem, poor problem. It's a human problem, and that's yeah. you know that's the rallying cry for us all to come together and find a solution for it. Well, and what I love about that that story that you just shared is that um, the conversation was started. You know. Yeah. It, starting the conversation to raise the awareness and the commonalities that we have and that we find are so precious and so many times I think overlooked because we don't start the conversation. And so, I mean, how cool to be doing the climb. Yeah. Yeah, It's a a tough conversation. I mean, I can remember my brother and I are literally on our, literally on our hands and knees in front of my father asking him to, to take some, some steps to make the end of their lives more comfortable and uh, and honestly it falling on deaf ears and how frustrating it was because, you know, it just um, it changes hard, especially when it involves major, major changes which threaten your identity and threaten your independence. Yep. Hey, Alan, we've got somebody online who wants to um, ask a question, so I'm just going to pull them in oh. here quick if you don't mind. Okay. 
Um, yeah. Hello, we've got somebody on from a 270 number. Who is on the line with us? Yes, uh, my name is Tyler Jury. I'm calling from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hi, Tyler. I know you, Tyler. What's Hi. Up? Alan, do you remember me? I uh, got to send you an email uh, about a year ago um, telling you I was following your cause, and I've kept up with you on Twitter. And just wanted to say thank you for all you're doing for Alzheimer's. Um, my grandfather had the disease and succumbed to it after suffering from it for four years, and I've been really encouraged by what you're doing. And I actually have never heard of the, the talk radio show, but I saw your tweet earlier. I thought I'd call in and, and say thank you. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for calling in. That is that, What a powerful yeah. connection, Alan, you've made. And, and Tyler, how sweet to follow up. That's very, very neat. Yeah. And yeah, and and joined. and we've got a group of men. I'd like to just say for we've got a group of men. Uh, two years ago, me and five of my friends rode bicycles from California to Virginia and went cross country for Alzheimer's research. And we raised fifty six thousand dollars that summer. And we've got twelve guys doing the same thing this year, going from International Falls, Canada, down to Key West um, to to recreate it and hopefully raise over a hundred thousand dollars. So uh, we've been inspired by people like Alan that they commit their lives to doing something to raise awareness and money for research, and we've been trying to do the same thing as well. Well, very cool. Hey, you Tyler. have to get a hold of me, um, and we'll have you guys on the show as well. And That would um, be incredible. See we, yeah, see if we can help promote what it is you're doing, because, again, none of us can do this alone. Um, but how cool, Alan, that you're, you're, you're out there just inspiring the world there. So that's very neat. You know, yeah, Tyler contacted me back in um, back. I think it was like March, almost a year ago, and um, we talked about his uh, his bike ride across the U.S. It was great to hear your voice live, Tyler. But you know, his his um, his grandfather died at 81, and he had, he had a short um, journey with it, only four years. But um, what they do with their their seven week ride across the U.S. is is just so inspirational that. And he's a, Tyler, you're what? You're now a senior, is that right? At Western Kentucky? Uh, yeah, I graduate in May, and I'll be going to dental school. <laughs> so fantastic. I'll be, I'm graduating this month. But I am so encouraged by seeing, uh, you know, your your demographic, if you will, your age group, uh, reaching out there and making a difference. Because I think it's important that we we reach, we have people of all age groups um, that are contributing and bringing awareness and education and hopefully some fundraising to this. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, Tyler, for everything that you're doing in your efforts. Absolutely. And we, we have the enthusiasm of 21-year-olds, but uh, we've been so blessed to run across people like yourself and people involved with Alzheimer's Association and media that are just so supportive of our cause. And, and that's ultimately what makes it happen is, is people who have connections and can really spread the word. Um, but... <clears throat> Alan, I know I, I tweeted at you about this a while back, but I just wanted to challenge you if your schedule's uh, open to try to make it to the Alzheimer's Forum in D.C. here in a couple of weeks. I know um, I think it's like April 23rd to do the 25th, and I know we're taking four guys there, and and, and it would be an awesome opportunity. So, all right, we'll see what we can do. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for calling in, Tyler, and best of luck. And again. Um, Reach out to me just at Lori L O R I at Alzheimer's okay. Speaks, and we'll we'll schedule something. We'll get your information out, push it out on the blog, and uh, get you set up on the radio show so that we can we can help support you as well. Okay. Okay, great. Y'all have a good day, and I'll uh, keep listening to the show until I go to class this afternoon. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. Hey, bye bye. See you, Lori. 
you know, Larry, what what strikes me about about Tyler is that um, is how important social media is. You know, I know Rick runs a runs a group on Facebook um, by invitation, and and but one of the ways I was able to reach uh, so many people was by using Twitter and Facebook and and social media and websites, and that's such an important part of helping to get the message out uh, that, you know, this social media makes a big difference and it enables, it not allows us to reach people that otherwise wouldn't be reached by the traditional, uh, you know, direct mail or uh, seminar type of an approach. Oh, I, I definitely agree. Definitely agree. And it's, you know, and it's economical and it's something that, you know, doesn't go away so it can be archived. It's, you know, you don't have to worry about the paper getting thrown away. It's, it's always out there and, <laughs> And stuff. So yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful route. And if we can all support one another, um, it just helps each of us, you know, um, through this process. There. So great. Um, was there was anything I'm, else that you? Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you. Can I bring up one more thing? Um, so sure. you know, I was, I was just, I was contacted by by just a, a lovely person, uh, Linda Eberman. Uh, recently, and uh, her husband was um, with Richard. He was diagnosed at age 57, and he passed away about, about well, it's been about two weeks ago, roughly. And Saturday would have been his 72nd birthday. And she went through that journey with him, and she lives in, uh, in, in eastern Tennessee. Of course, I grew up in western Tennessee in Memphis, so we had a natural affinity that we could understand each other's accents. Actually, she's from California. Anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> So what Linda exposed me to, though, was that there's a um, there's an effort out there using um, to raise money through selling uh, U.S. postage stamps. Are you familiar with this? You know, I know that they were trying it, but I, I don't know a lot. So I'm going to let you just take it and run, and you can inform <laughs> well, us. So, yeah, so what it is is that it's kind of modeled after an effort that was done for uh, for breast cancer. And it was introduced back in 1988, and that cancer stamp, what you do, you go to the post office and you buy it and you pay a premium for the stamp. So obviously you're going to pay more than whatever the postage rate is. But listen to this. It has raised $80 million that went wow. back into research since 1988. And, wow. you know, the other day, you know, President Obama just passed or signed the the increase in funding, uh, at least for the short term, of $113 million as part of the NAPA Act. And everybody celebrated that. What if we could get $80 million just through people doing what they already do, and that is to buy postage stamps? So there's an effort going on um, in Congress. There's actually a bill which is already there um, that will – that it's already going through the process in Congress, but as we all know, that sometimes not every bill reaches into law or is funded. And so there's two there's two resolutions. And, and Lori, I'd love to work with you and, and and some of our other sites out there to get all this information out to the readers and the listeners. But there's two resolutions. There's a House Resolution 351 and a Senate Resolution 176. So House 351 and Senate 176 that are in committee right now, and they need to get out of committee and they need to get funded. And so there's a, there's a very clear call to action, and that is for people to call their, their representatives or congresspersons and their senators and ask them to support, it's called the semi-postal stamp for Alzheimer's research. Again, House Resolution 351 
and Senate Resolution 176. I'm going to put this on my blog, and maybe we can get it on yours too, Lori, and everybody yeah, else that would out be there. Great. And circle back around to the social media stuff, and we can get Tyler maybe to put it on his stuff and, and get everybody out there to raise the awareness that here's a simple way that we can all show our support for individuals who have it, as well as showing our putting our money where our mouth is and doing something we already do, which is buy postage stamps, and just pay a little bit extra and have a very uh, painless way of, uh, of making a donation to research. I love that idea. I think that's absolutely a fantastic, fantastic. Um, so if you can get me that, that information, that would be wonderful. If you can shoot me a, an email on that, that would be great. Um, and do you have, by chance, a, you know, like the Alzheimer's Association is so good with their links um, to be able to contact your congressperson at all? Do you know if there's anything that ties into that already? Um yeah. You know, I'm not aware of the – in fact, I was going to call our, our local contact here in Colorado and uh, see what they're doing, but I don't – I'm not aware of, a, um, of an Alzheimer's Association effort there. Um, okay. they, I think they're focusing so much on NAPA right now, but um, I'm sure. sure this is something that they would be, you know, also very happy to uh, to work on. Wonderful. Well, great. Well, as usual, it's just always so pleasant to have you on the show. You just are – um, just so fun to speak with and, and full of just cool things that you have done and are doing and the connections that you're you're making and, um, you know, just your collaborative and compassionate heart is, is so appreciated, Alan. You're doing, you're doing a lot. You're making a big, big difference out there. So I, I thank you so much for being a guest on, on our show today. Is there um, contact information you would like to give people so that they can follow you? Sure, you know, just go to the website alanarnett.com, A-L-A-N-A-R-N-E-T-T-E. I think you, you know, it's just my name you have right there on the on the, um, the on your website and also on Blog Talk Radio, uh, and they okay. can shoot me an email. There's contact information there. And I'd love to hear from you. And, hey, by the way, a big shout out to uh, to Rita, who I know is also listening. I think Linda's listening, and some other people out there. So. All of my uh, social media friends, uh, thanks for all of your support over the years, and you guys have uh, you gave me uh, a little bit of extra oxygen when I was climbing. So thanks to everybody. <laughs> See, you know what? We've got another caller. If you have a second, you okay? Sure, you bet. Taking you a bet. Oh, yeah. Okay. We have another caller from an eight six five number, and who is on the line with us? This is Linda Everman. Well, hi, Linda. How are you hi. doing today? Hey, is this hi, Alan Linda, and Lori? Hey, I was tuned in, and thank you so much. And, yes, there, um, there's an easy way to find out who your representatives are, and it's on my Facebook page. There's a link to contacting your um, representative, and all you have to do is put in your address, and it'll pull up who they are, and it'll give you their uh, direct phone numbers in Washington. I knew there was a way. Linda, can you do me a favor? Can you connect with me on Facebook and then give me that link or share that link with me? And then I'll yes, go I can, although I'm not quite sure how to connect with you because I just got oh. um, the URL blog oh. from Alan this morning. Okay, we'll, we'll but I'm sure we'll Alan will give it to me. We'll make it happen. Okay, All right, wonderful. perfect. Well, thank you all, and thank you so much for talking about the postage stamp. Well, thank you for, you know, getting it out there and connecting with people because, like I say, none of us can do any of this alone, and there's so you know, many, you know, um, levels. It, it's actually not me. It's actually a woman by the name of Kathy Siggins who started this 
campaign in 1999. So talk about connections. She is a retired social uh, postal worker, and she cared for her husband for 13 years. And she actually got the commemorative stamp to pass in 2008, and now she's on a campaign to um, get it to be a fundraiser, and she has personally written and delivered letters to every member of Congress. So it's pretty impressive. Wow. Well, if you talk with her and if she's interested in coming on the show, I'd love to have her so we can get her voice heard a little bit more, too. Um, you know, again, it's it's all about working together and raising that platform. Um, there's so many options of ways to be able to raise raise awareness and raise funds, and but you know, we just need those platforms to be able to connect the dots. Uh, it would be another. a great thing so, to walk into the post office and pay an extra eleven cents and know that you're joining with others to um, raise awareness and funds for research. So thank you all so much. Well, thanks for calling in, Linda. Alan, anything you wanted to add? No, just you know, I, it, might, it just makes me smile when I when I hear this this level of uh, grassroots uh, collaboration. That uh, you know, people, it is so frustrating. Uh, just a very quick story, uh, Lori. That that I remember one time. I, I think maybe I've told you this before. But I was I was uh, doing some training here in Colorado for my mountain climbs. I'm walking along, and there's a um, as happens, you you know you run into other climbers, and I got to talking to somebody, and they said, "What do you do?" And I told them, and this um, this really lovely lady said, "You know, my my mother died from Alzheimer's," and uh, I said, "Oh yeah," I said, "Yeah, it's horrible," and we talked about that, and then she said, she said, "You know, I think it's great what you're doing, but you know, I did that one time. I went out there and I did the walks, and I tried to raise money, and I tried to raise people's education, but you know what?" We're never going to have a cure. And I just gave up. And I think about that story so often that how easy it is. And, and, you know, one of the things that I use in my mountain climbing is that I say there's a thousand reasons to turn around, but there's only one to keep going. And anytime you're doing something hard, um, all the way from what uh, Kathy Siggins is doing with, with the postage stamp to, you know, to Linda with, with, uh, with her husband or Rita with her mom, or Steve going, he's living it right now. There's a thousand reasons to stop and only one to keep going, and we've got to keep that one reason to keep going in focus. And I just, it just, it just gives me a warm feeling inside when I hear this grassroots level of collaboration, and I know that together that we can influence all the way from public policy to in-home care to awareness so that none of us, and, you know, and, Laura, you've lived this as well, that, you know, we don't have to go through this again for future generations. So I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. We're going to get there. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm hanging up, and I'm still listening to you. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, thank you, Alan, so much for all you're doing. And it is it is very fun to hear all these various grassroots things that are going on. And I mean, you can't even track them all. There's so many. Yeah. It's very, it's very, very cool. Our culture, you know, our dementia culture care is going to change, and we are going to find a cure. You know, it's just a matter of may I may I jump in real quick, Lori? I've sure. I've been on I've been listening, and I just sure, I just you. wanted to thank him for um for what he's doing as a person that just being diagnosed with this disease in in February and going through all the learning stages and trying to get acclimated to what needs to be done 
what he's doing is just phenomenal. And I thank him from a patient's point of view. Um, and it, it, it just it, it lifts my heart to know that there's there's gentlemen out there like him and and and, and like Tyler that are so energetic and so enthused into doing things for for the cause. And um, I just I just wanted to make sure that I got that out there. Oh, great. Well, thank you, Steve. You you did an excellent job. This has just been a really fun show for me to have you on the show, as well as Alan with our callers and conversations in the chat box and stuff today. It was just really a, a very fun um, kind of communal show, which is which is great. Um, that's, that's the intent of it. Um, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap up the show here. Um, and uh, we will all be connecting again in the future here. For listeners, if you've enjoyed the show today, I just really encourage you to share Alzheimer Speaks Radio on Facebook or tweet about us, um, write about us on your blog. Again, this is not about any one individual getting this right. This is about us working together um, to share to share our thoughts, our concerns, our our motivations, our passions to, to make a shift in our culture care. We've got some great shows coming up. I'm, I'm so excited. On Friday, this Friday, Naomi File is going to be on. And Naomi is just such a beautiful yet powerful woman who has um, followed her passion, and she is the creator of the validation program. Naomi is going to be turning 80 in, um, I think it's in May. She's coming here to Minnesota. We're going to be having a big celebration for her there. But she is known throughout the world, and I can't even tell you how many languages her books um, are, are printed in, but she is absolutely phenomenal in terms of shifting our dementia care culture. So she'll be on the show this Friday, and that will be at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Central, and that would be noon um, Mountain and 11 um, Pacific Time. And then on the 12th, we're going to have author Kathy Borey. Um, and then towards the end of the month, we're going to have a another group on who has written a song. It's a, a son song about his journey with his mother on dementia. We've just got some great shows coming up. So I hope you tune in again. I love all of you being a part of us. So, again, thank you so much, and we will talk soon. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.